All right, we have a special treat for you this morning. It's a great privilege to introduce to you the couple that I'm going to introduce this morning. So we had a chance a couple of weeks ago to hear from uh, Emmanuel and Grace, and uh, that was a great highlight. But what we didn't get a chance to hear from was James and Sarah. And so we put another time. The only Sunday we could get was the this Sunday, which is on Women's Retreat, which probably isn't the best Sunday, but... Uh, they'll be able to download the tape, so that'll be great. But James and Sarah, we have an amazing story together. Uh, James and I actually go way back to another fella named John Burkholder. Many of you know John Burkholder. And John uh, had two boys, and James lived across the street and used to babysit for Blake and Bryce. And uh, Pam and I, many of you might not know this, were uh, godparents for John's children. And so there was this... uh, kind of connection and I didn't really know about James other than I heard about this young guy running all over the globe doing ministry for Jesus and uh, when we finally hooked up they were in South Africa together and when James came back he said man I, I, I don't have a church I don't have a place to belong I said seriously he goes yeah I said nobody really owns it I said okay we adopt you officially right now you're ours and I meant that sincerely I meant that with a whole heart and I still mean that today. It's been one of our great relationships. When they come back, we treat them like rock stars because they are for the Lord. And so would you give James and Sarah a great Norfolk welcome as they come up this morning. Hi. Yeah, no, we do just want to say thank you so much for your love and care and support. From day one, we have felt just like family here, like we weren't strangers. I might cry. That's funny. <laughs> um, yeah, and I had, was blessed to be able to go on the women's retreat uh, for a day yesterday and was just so also blessed just to hear uh, some of the ladies hear stories and testimonies and get to know some of you guys a little bit more. And, um, yeah, it's been just a blessing. And even there, I just felt like one of the girls. And, um, yeah, we're just very thankful for, for your care and support. So I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. Um, what a pleasure to be here with you guys again. And uh, um, thank you again, Steve. I continue to be amazed that he, the way that, that Steve has embraced us and this body. Um, it's, it's been such a joy. He keeps giving us the freedom to be able to share in front of what has become our family. Uh, and thank you for those that have embraced us and, and stood behind us. My, it was so wonderful just hearing from my wife and at the retreat that she was at of just how she, everywhere she went, she just felt home. She just felt people, just the, the acceptance, the embracing that's been part of this community that's just really marked this community for us since the first time we came here. And it's just so, um, we, I don't know how to say that. That doesn't come off as just platitudes or something, but that we're just so grateful to be part and to be able to call Northview home. Um, and so thank you for accepting us and, and uh, making this home for us. Um, this morning, I, I want to share a little bit about what we do uh, in South Africa and some little recent things that are happening. Um, but even more than that, I want to lead that into sharing a message I feel the Lord laid upon my heart for, for this morning. And um, <clears throat> for those that don't know, my wife and I, we live in, in, in South Africa, specifically in the, the Cape Town region in the southern tip, right near the Cape of Good Hope. And we work with an organization called Youth with a Mission. Uh, back when I joined, I was youth. I joined when I was 17. Um, I turned 37 yesterday, so that's been a while. Um, and uh, I'm now 
I've been now been in missions longer than many of our students have been alive, which is a little, little weird thing that happened this past year. Um, but Youth with a Mission is a global, one of the world's largest global missions organizations that focuses on discipleship and reaching the lost and every possible kind of ministry you can imagine. And, and we're specifically focused in a, in a place called Musenberg, which is just south of Cape Town. Um, oh, whoops. I guess I'm jumping ahead. Joys of not using notes. Uh, there, oh, is that was okay. All right. So this is um, where... We work at this training facility here in in, uh, in Musenberg, and uh, from there we train every year. We probably, I think we have about 250 or so full time staff that work with us as far as missionaries working in that region, and then we train probably about 300 or so students that come through every year into discipleship training programs and Bible schools and anti human trafficking schools and church planning schools and evangelism schools and every type of training to mobilize people from across the globe. And usually we have about 40 or 50 different nations represented on in our community at any one time and of uh, people just going out to, to serve Jesus. And my wife and I's role is really, um, it's kind of evolved over time, and now we're part of a team that oversees the, the broader ministries that are going on there, um, as well as pursuing some of our own passions. And, and, and all along, our primary passion from the very beginning has just been the famous missionary verse that um, everyone always hears of Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, of the classic Great Commission of go, therefore, into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And that's where Jesus is one of the last words of the book of Matthew, his final call and commission to his disciples that we call that Great Commission. And the idea that we need to go out and see people come to know Jesus, to see people saved and um, and that's something that most Christians understand. Definitely in missions, we understand we're supposed to go out and see people come to know Jesus. But that's not what it actually says, just to go see people saved. It says, go and, and make disciples. And then a little bit later, as you see there, it says, in teaching them to obey everything I've commanded them and, and make sure they know that I will be with them of this whole journey every step of the way. Uh, the late theologian Dallas Willard uh, wrote a great book called The Great Omission, in which he describes how today... Uh, it, it seems that we've forgotten the second half of this, that the focus of the church and missions and even the bo- local bodies of Christ is much more on just go and see people converted, go and see people saved from hell into heaven without much of an emphasis on that second half of making disciples, which is teaching them to obey everything I've commanded and understanding that he is with them in a relationship for every aspect of that process. Right. And. So, that, I mean, that's, that's really our passion of what we do and why we do it. And, and there's the, the second passage that I think goes hand in hand with this that is really kind of our, our, our life or mission verse. And that comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul, the spiritual father of Timothy, as he's kind of commissioning out Timothy and sending him away as Paul is kind of about ready to depart. He says this to Timothy and he tells them that you, you've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now, teach these truths that you've heard me teach. Teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will then be able to pass these things on to others. Seems like kind of a random passage, but what is he saying there? Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, I have been discipling you. 
And I've been teaching you everything that I know, and you've been learning from me, from my life and from my words. Now what I want you to do, Timothy, is take everything you've heard from me, everything you've gleaned from me, and now pass that on to others. But do it in such a way that it is so deep and so real in how they encounter Christ that it then passes on to the next generation, who it is so real and so vibrant that it passes on to the next. That it's making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. It's, it's not enough just to make a disciple, but... The the problem that I've observed in not just the American church, but really the global church everywhere I've traveled, is there seems to be a a common denominator that has happened in in the church of this sense that, that, that our pursuit, our chief goal is pursuing salvation, not actually pursuing Jesus. Not pursuing a relationship with him, not walking out into being his follower and being a disciple, but our pursuit is almost this self-centered pursuit of just pursuing enough of I'm good, I'm covered, I'm saved. And so as we make disciples, we, you can say, I am now saved, but we are so pursuing of comfort and safety and self-protection and especially there's almost this bunker mentality that we can sometimes move into as a church, especially in today's climate, that it doesn't continue on. It ends with us because of the amount of work it takes to get out of that place. And I, I want to talk a bit about that today as, as I continue, because that's really where my heart is at, where I feel the Lord led me to share today. But um, my wife and I, that, that really is our focus. And as we've been in missions now, again, almost 20 years now, I've seen that, especially from the beginning days, my focus is shifting more and more to depth, not breadth. In the early days, my real heart was just as many people as possible, just just a shotgun version of, of just, just get as many people to hear the gospel, and that's all that matters. And if they got saved, I'd write my testimony, shout hallelujah, and I'd move on because my job was done. I was an evangelist. I was there to see them saved. The Lord has really brought some balance to, to that misunderstanding and some of that youthful exuberance of understanding that the job doesn't, be, it doesn't end upon salvation. It's just beginning. And where, where we work in South Africa, we see a lot of sweet stuff. And over the years that I've been working in, in mission, the last 20 years, I mean, I could stand up and tell you days and days of stories of the stuff God has done. I mean, it's, I'll be honest, it, I'm not saying humility, it's been a pretty sweet ride these last 20 years. The things that I've been able to see, the things that God's done, I could write so many books about the incredible stuff. I've seen the blind cease, receive sight. I've seen God use and make the deaf hear, make the mute speak. I've seen the cripple walk. I've seen so many of these crazy stuff. I almost saw a dead person raised. I thought about it. I thought we saw it. We prayed. I prayed for it. used to pray for it regularly. And as we're going out there, just trusting God to do the miraculous. We're in Nepal, and there's a funeral happening. And me and a few of our friends were just stoked with God. We're like, let's go for it. Let's go pray for the guy they're bringing to the grave site and we all run around and pray for him and it's a bunch of youth carrying this uh we thought it was a grave procession um they're they're carrying a guy covered it was clearly a man on a sheet on a on a board they're carrying him in white and they walk right past us and we all jump around and we didn't realize they'd seen a lot of mission teams before and uh, we all start praying for this guy that's laying on this bed and we're praying and praying and praying all of a sudden he shoots straight up we're like ah hallelujah and they all start laughing and run away uh it was totally a joke to play on the missionaries um one of the funniest things I've ever seen. But, man, we were, what? What? Didn't realize that those guys had as much understanding as we did of what we did. That was, that was just awesome. Um, but nonetheless, I've, I've seen some crazy stuff over the years, this exciting stuff, things that are just blow your mind kind of stuff. I've been able to preach to thousands, seen countless people except Christ, and, and, and I've been able to train tons of pastors, and I've been able to travel the world. I've, I've even seen, I've, I've worked with witch doctors. I've worked with cannibals. I've worked with... Uh, like child soldiers who are 
literally mass murdering child soldiers who have grenade launchers and rocket launchers buried in their yard that they use. I'm not joking about this stuff. I've seen these guys repenting in tears, turning their lives to Christ. I mean, crazy stuff. Witch doctors with just recanting of all this stuff, burning skulls and stuff in front of us as they repent of all the demonism and all the stuff they're involved with. I've seen some crazy stuff. But none of it begins to compare to what we're seeing happen in South Africa the last few years. None of it gets as excited as what we've seen as we've invested the last eight years in one place and been working with people and walking with them through this issue of discipleship, of what does it mean to not just encounter Jesus, but to come to know him so deeply, to walk in such intimacy with him and relationship with him that our lives are transformed by who he is. And that we allow every aspect of our lives, growing and allowing every aspect of our lives to be touched by his beauty and conforming our heart to that of his. And that's really what our focus is as we oversee a broader ministry. But even as each relationship we work with is how do we personally walk in that of continuing to walk in this intimacy of the beauty of Christ in every area of our life as as it's revealed to us and then walking and challenging others in that same place. Um, so for example, this is a community right across, actually, we just bought a house in South Africa, and this is across a major street from where we live, of a major community that God has called me to a number of years ago, um, where he, I think I would have spoken about the last time I was here, where he really challenged me to spend more, less of my time training pastors and missionaries and do more time working in a, in a local uh, community that, that's rife with drug addiction and abuse and violence and uh, gangsterism and all sorts of other things, and he called me to um, specifically out of Luke chapter 5, to work amongst the poor and the, and the broken. And so that's something I started a number of years ago, and, and it's been a rough journey, working amongst people, that, and, and as some of you may know, that are deep in addiction, deep in violence, specifically the level of, of, of poverty is something that most people will never uh, see or let alone experience. And as I've entered into those communities and just loving on people, the things that God has done has been incredible. Now, there's also, for every positive story, I can tell you a hundred disappointments, places of wanting to quit, places of brokenness of every positive story. There's, there's plenty of, of setbacks. But some of the examples of, of, of things right there, one would be a man named Charlie. I think I've shared about before when I was here before. Uh, as a guy that I've been working with for a number of years, met him about four years ago. And, and he, when I first met him, he was uh, not a real friendly guy. Um, covered in tattoos from neck to, to toe and hands. And uh, I think he was in prison, I think it was 24 times by the age of 26 um, for everything. It was a, a drug dealer, gangster, violent, notorious in the area. A man just looking at him makes you want to run away. And it was only the Holy Spirit that even allowed me to approach him the first time as I was terrified walking up to this guy when I met him the first time. But over the, to make a long story short, over the years as I met with him, daily, sometimes weekly, and just kept me just pursuing and just loving on him because the Lord really impressed upon my heart that I wasn't to go out and do evangelism. I was to go out and disciple. And even though, obviously, he was at a very early stage of discipleship, <laughs> not knowing Jesus and deep into addictions and violence and everything else, that I was to, dis- I was to begin the discipleship process from that point, to-, to begin showing him the love of Christ and spending time with him. And I used to just hang out with him on the street corner while he's selling crystal meth. And I'd- we'd be in the room where there's all this stolen merchandise sitting on the floor. We'd just be talking about Jesus with him and his friends and hearing about life and talk about what's going on. And I'd meet- hang out with him in prison or hang out with him in his house or in the, in the-, in the gutter, literally, sometimes as He's recovering from things and just hang out in those places. And a couple of years ago, through a radical movement of God, he gave his life to the Lord. And that was awesome. That was exciting. And, but the reality is that was just the beginning. That's where the fun really begins. And whereas in the past, that would have been my point to say, awesome, go to church. Now I get to move on to somebody else. 
In this case, the Lord said, no, now the journey just begins. Now, what does it look like to live in the reality of relationship with me? What does it mean to be my disciple, to know me, to love me? And so that began the last couple of years of getting together regularly, of talking about what does it mean to, to see Jesus glorified in your family? What does it mean in your workplace? Because he works for an NGO, a nonprofit there, a secular German nonprofit that's there doing development work amongst children. That's his job. And so it's all atheist Germans who are, he's working with, a number of them who are there to serve the poor people of the community. And so he, they are, he, they come to serve him, but he in that place has turned it around. And now Charlie is the light of his community. And we are constantly in conversation of what does it look like for Jesus to be glorified in your life as you interact with these Germans who are there trying to teach you guys. And now he is the one who's teaching them. And these guys are now going to church. They're testing out. They're not Christians at most of them, but they're, they're really curious. They're asking question after question as they hold these parties and these raves. And he goes to them, just hangs out with these guys and loves on them. And that's what our relationship now is. What does it look like for, for you to glorify, to see the life of Jesus glorified in your relationship with your girlfriend? What does that look like to be able to influence your brother or the neighbor or your mom who's who's doing these things? And that's kind of what our relationship is like now of that discipleship and ongoing process. And it is so much fun. And I would trade any miracle or anything else to be able to experience the joy of walking in discipleship with someone. And he challenges me in the same way. In fact, it was beautiful. Just recently, I even had him come and teach on our discipleship training program with our students. All these white people in, from the South Africa, I mean, it was a white class, but it was awesome because specifically the white South Africans who are known to be terrorized by this particular gentleman. They would see him and run in fear, and he, there, there he is. Telling you guys, been Christians since they were beginning, been a Christian for about eight months at that point, and he's discipling them and teaching them what does it look like to live in love like Jesus. It was a beautiful moment that, that still brings me to tears as I think about it. And I'll continue to engage with him in those, type, those capacities. Um, another one that you would have met a couple weeks ago, my, my closest friend in the world of, of Emmanuel. And uh, although I take no credit for his discipleship in any way, God's done an incredible work in him. What's fascinating about Emmanuel is I've worked with him about the last eight years. He would tell you this himself. Emmanuel, when I met him eight years ago, he was a Christian. He'd been a Christian for almost eight years. And the man that you would have seen, for those that were there on, on the Sunday or came on the Monday night, you would have met a man who walks with incredible humility, an incredible empathy, a passion for people, and a sensitivity towards others. I can tell you eight years ago, none of that existed. <laughs> that is not the man that you would have seen eight years ago. Um, it was there somewhere. Just <laughs> it, was, it was hidden. It was pretty rough. But the thing that's amazing is eight years ago, he'd been a Christian for eight years at that point. He'd gone to two different seminaries both of which he had to run away from because they were going to get burned down but, uh, because of his presence there. But he had been at two different seminaries. He had been to countless churches, had preached countless sermons, had started ministries of seeing people come to know Jesus left and right. But he had never encountered discipleship. He had never encountered someone walking alongside and saying, what does it mean to actually see our lives come into line with that of Jesus? What does it mean to walk in relationship with Jesus to a level that he becomes our source of life? And that we allow him to form how we think about marriage, how we think about relationships, how we think about work, how we think about ministry. And so that became our relationship with so much of it was us just sitting together for hours talking about what does it look like for Jesus to shape our marriage and how we treat our wives? Or in what does it look like for Jesus to shape how we treat our parents? I mean, especially in this situation where they're literally trying to kill him. 
What does it look like? What is Jesus' heart for us as we know him and how it shapes the way we treat workers at, at fast food joints or other places who would, every time we'd go out to a meal, they would walk away saying, what is wrong with your friend? He's so rude and so mean. What does it look like for Jesus' love to, to show through us even as we're checking out at the grocery line? Jesus, what does it look like to be so filled with your love that, that, that your reality becomes our reality? To understand that incarnational aspect of Jesus, that he came here and showed us the way. And now he is with us, guiding us, that he wants every area of our life to reflect his beauty and his love as we walk in relationship with him. Or another one of, of Pastor Jeremiah, another one of my dear friends. I met him also about eight years ago. We moved right to South Africa. He had just done a discipleship program and I was, was a refugee from Congo. Um, and we began spending a lot of time together. And he did, as he did our Bible school, we began a great relationship that has continued to this, this day that we meet every, every other week or every month for the last seven or eight years. And those conversations, it's all about together as we pursue. He's now a pastor of a, of a fast-growing church amongst a very broken community and seeing incredible things happen for the gospel. And so much of our time is spent. So, okay, what, is it, what does it look like as we love Jesus to see Jesus impact our marriage? So much of our time is spent on marriage. What does it look like to love our wives, to love our children, to, to love those that, that God has put in our congregations in our midst who are, we're in tension with, who are trying to usurp us or hurt us, or those who are looking down upon us? What does it look like to see the beauty of Jesus encounter the beauty of Christ to such a degree that it shapes all of those relationships? And that's what our friendship looks like. It's just challenging each other in that. Um, and that there's nothing I would rather do than be in this place of just saying, Jesus, I want to know you so deeply. I want to be your disciple. I don't want to be content to just stand on the sidelines, but I want to be a disciple and I want to be a follower of you. And I want for you to impact every area of my life. And then from that place, okay, now, Lord, show me how I can do the same with the people around me. How can I walk with my neighbor or with my friend or with other people, even in social settings, that I can be able to begin that journey of walking with people so they can encounter your love more deeply, that it impacts them and continues to go on and on and on. Uh, in fact, that's even where we're moving next. In this September, for those of you who don't know much about well, Youth with a Mission, we run a discipleship training program called the Discipleship Training School. It's a six-month program with three months of intensive discipleship and teaching and training and then three months of an outreach. If anyone's interested, I'm actually leading the next one in Cape Town with a great team around me. If you know of anyone or children, if you happen to be between the ages of 17 and 77 or 90, you're eligible. Um, if you can take about six months off of life and just want to experience God and get excited and rocked by the world, by, by, by who God is in this world and get trained and then also set out for an experience of missions, I'd love to have you join us in that process. It starts in September. Let me know if you know or anyone that's interested. But So we work in these discipleship programs, but... It's fascinating because as we, um, oh, and also just before I forget, because I always forget, afterwards, my wife and I will be right outside. There's a place if you're interested in hearing what God is doing and sign up for our newsletters. There's a newsletter sign up and even some prayer magnets if you want to keep us before you right outside the door on the left side out there. Please sign up. We send out monthly newsletters of things God's doing, and um, there's prayer cards there you could keep if you want to keep us in your prayer. But with these discipleship programs that we run, Usually the first week, I kind of have a teaching I often do, and it's quite similar. And, and uh, it, something I actually stole from Gordon Fee's daughter, uh, Dr. Cherith. Uh, um, and uh, it's, I, I write down on the, on the board, I write the word discipleship. And I ask everyone, write the first word that comes to mind when you see the word discipleship. 
And I've done this with students. I've done this with pastors, missionaries, alpha groups, all sorts of groups, but a number of times. And the results are almost always the same. When you ask people the first words that come to mind when they think of the word discipleship, it's usually words like obedience, teaching, training, conforming. It's, the, it's this word. It's, when you read out the whole list, when you get a room of 30 people all giving their first word, it sounds terrible, really. I mean, it, it sounds like this, it, walking through mud is basically the best way to describe the list that comes through when you talk about discipleship. And then I write the word heaven on the board. I say first word that comes to mind with the word heaven. And same thing, the result is, always the, is almost always the same. It's always going to be stuff like love, joy. Um, it's going to be singing, dancing, freedom, no more pain, no more suffering, uh, mansions, gold, singing, uh, rejoicing. It's, it's this, this place of fun. Basically, a pleasure paradise in the sky is what it ends up looking like. And what's absolutely amazing, it's actually not, but it's been consistent, eight to nine times out of ten, no matter what group I work with, young Christians, older Christians, pastors, missionaries, you know what's not mentioned when they think of heaven? Jesus. It's always that awkward moment when I write down 20 things and then I say, anyone know what's missing? And people go, uh, God? Yes. <laughs> God's not on your list. Did that, why did that take a room of 20 pastors so long to figure out? When you spoke about heaven, you spoke all these wonderful things, but God's not there. Why is that? It's not a great mystery. It's because when we come, most, so many of us, when we ex- come to Christianity, we say a sinner's prayer, we do whatever it is, it's not honestly because we are so deeply in love with Jesus, we want the stuff that we think Jesus is going to give us. We want to get saved from hell into heaven. Or we want the peace that surpasses understanding. We want this other stuff. We don't actually want Jesus, most of us, when we come. We're interested in this stuff. And it makes sense when people say, hey, you want, do you want... Are you, do you know Jesus? No. Well, you don't. You're going to hell. I don't want to go to hell. Well, accept Jesus and you go to heaven. And right there we have our issue where we tell people the point of Jesus is to get the stuff that Jesus offers us. And so from our foundations, even as children coming into church and Sunday school, it often starts at that foundational level that we pursue his stuff. We pursue this vision of heaven that we want. And we, as a result, we become very self-centered Christians. And I see this globally everywhere I go in the church. That there's this very self, not not every single person, but I would say every person has an aspect of this. That we're very, quite self-centered in how we walk out the discipleship process. And and this is really what what I want to talk about because there is so much more. And it blows my mind because Emmanuel came and shared the other day, and he does a lot of training. And I hope we'll get him back sometime to do some training on this of how to reach Muslims and understanding Islam. And one of the teachings he does is understanding heaven from an Islamic perspective. And it's fascinating because we as Christians can often look down and, uh, on Muslims and think that they're just all doing it for the wrong reasons. But you see, in Islamic understanding, they on this world believe that it's basically a proving ground from which to appease Allah. Five times of prayer, all the other stuff, all the, the things of going to Mecca, and everything they do is all based around pleasing Allah. Right, to do everything they can, order their lives, and often in places of misery, in order that one day they hope that no one has an idea, not even Muhammad himself knew if he would be saved, but in the hope that they would be saved. But once they get saved, that's where the cool thing begins. Because Islamic heaven kicks Christian heaven's butt when it comes to self-serving pleasure. In the Islamic heaven, anything you can think of, imagine, or fantasize about exists. It's written in incredible detail, and not just in the Quran, but the Hadith, all the other holy writings. Anything you can imagine is yours. You've heard of the 72 virgins if you die in jihad. That's nothing. That's just, that's actually, that's weird. They're these 90-foot-tall virgins. It's kind of a strange thing. But 
what's, what you can have, anyone who's in Islamic heaven can have anything they want. You can have a hundred virgins if you want. In fact, there's, in, there's hundreds of pages detailing the types of women you can have, or little boys or girls, because anything you want, there's no right or wrong. Everything you want is good, and it's, you can have anything you want. It gives incredible details saying the beds are so soft that if you lay on them, it takes you 10,000 years before you finally rest. That's how soft the beds are. It says the food is so incredible that you're to touch it to your tongue today, your head would explode. Right? I mean, it goes on and on with incredible detail. But you know what's missing from Islamic heaven? You know what's not spent any time talking about? Allah. Why not? That's not the interest. The interest is in Allah. Allah is the means to get paradise. Once you get paradise, why would you want the guy that made you do all the stuff to get there? You've already jumped through the hoops. Now you got what you want. Now, as Christians, we can say, oh, oh, those selfish Muslims. They got it all wrong. Why don't they come to church and get it right? But what message are we living? Is it really any better for most of the church? Are, are we really, outside of offering guaranteed heaven through Jesus... We're still saying this is a life, discipleship is a life of drudgery that we conform and do all this stuff in the hopes that one day we can get to a pleasure paradise in the sky that's just not quite as good as yours because ours, we have to keep worshiping Jesus over and over again. And we sing that song that we all love. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. Really? That's what heaven is about? Most people, that doesn't sound very exciting. So it just all becomes about us, right? But that's not what it's about. That's not the gospel. That's not why Jesus came. He came to be in relationship with us. He came because he is life, and he wanted us to find life in him. Not so he could give us a bunch of treasure, but because he is the treasure that we seek. That beautiful story, and there's so many of them, but for example, the one of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, she's sitting there dying of thirst, the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, trying to gather water, and Jesus comes up to her and says, what are you looking for? And she says, I'm thirsty. I'm here drinking water. And he says, what have I told you? I had water that would never end, that would make it unquenchable, that would quench your thirst. You would never have to drink again. And she says, give me this water. I want this thing that you, I want this treasure that you have to offer. And what Jesus does not say, believe in me and I will let you go to heaven and taste this water for eternity. That's not what he says. He says, I am the living water. I am life. I am what you're searching for. It's me. When the Pharisees are doing the same, and Jesus says, says, you search the scriptures to find all these answers, to make sense of everything. And he says, when all the scriptures, what do they point to? They point to me. I am what you're seeking for. Not treasures, not all this stuff. It's me that you're looking for. Come to me. And come to know me and walk in relationship with me. Become one of my disciples. Follow me and you will have life in me. That is where life exists. But as a body, we so often move back in towards our self-centeredness and pulling away. And it's so common for that to be our, our process where we just keep pulling away back into ourselves and we pursue this sideline Christianity, this sense that that, well, maybe when we start off, we can get all excited, but as we get older and wiser, we let the younger people play. And we become 
a little distanced to the game. We say, yeah, I'm good. And we just kind of start pursuing our own comforts, our own protections. And so much of our discipleship process really becomes a sense of what do I need to do? Or what can I get away with? Where are the boundaries? So it's why when you do a lot of premarital counseling or in counseling relationships with young people, the first question they ask is, how far is too far? Wrong question. They say, where are the boundaries that I can push to? And as that's where we live our lives as Christians, what's the least amount I need to do to really do this? We're not pursuing Jesus. We're saying, what's the least amount I really, how, what's the shortest quiet time I can have? So what are the books that fly off the shelves? Two minute quiet time. Five minutes is all you need. What is the least amount I can get away with? We go to tithing. We say, oh Lord, here's my finances. What's the least I can give and you'll be satisfied with me? Rather than saying, Lord, what would bring you pleasure? What would bring you joy and submitting our finances to him? When we come to whatever aspect it is, we're always like, okay, what do I need to do here? Instead of saying, Jesus, what is your heart for me and for my life? I want to walk with you and know you, and I want your will to inform my life. I want to see what that looks like. So in my marriage, it means me coming, and I do this regularly. I fail more than I do it well, but I do it regularly, almost every day. Come, Jesus, Lord, what does it mean to love Sarah? As I walk with you, Lord, show me my selfishness. And show me how to love in the midst of our tensions. Or with my little son, JJ, who's a three-nager right now, three, about three and a half, and a little emotionally unstable at the moment. Man, going with him. I, I don't know if there's, a, if there's probably a day, but not two days that go by these days without me coming back to the Lord and saying, God, how do I love this kid? Because I'm frustrated. And I don't want to say, Jesus, show me what it means for me to be a better father. As I walk in knowing you, as I spend time with you, as I pray to you, Lord, may you inform my hearts of what it means to lead this child. And not just perpetuate what was done to us, but to say, Lord, I want you to guide this time. It's fascinating entering into America at this time. We've been overseas the last few years and stepping in at this time just with all that's going on in the world today and all the chaos and the stuff that's happening. And it just seems there's so much uncertainty, so much anxiety. And in the body of Christ, the people I'm sitting with having meals with so much, I would say hopelessness that's going on as people are just a place of, I think cynicism has grown in the church. A disengagement bunker mentality is even, so we talk about personal relationship, but just even as we engage with the world God placed us in. And I was sitting recently with some friends and we were having a conversation about this. And basically the conversation was going as most people just saying, you know, the world's headed to hell. America's going down the tube. There's nothing left. There's no hope for this. And it's just meaningless. And there's no hope. And this is bad. And this is bad. And this is bad. And I just was sitting there just saying, this is not Jesus' opinion. As the conversation went on, the words that were going, basically saying the world's going to hell. The thing that was crying in my heart is, hell No! It's not going to hell. That is not the heart of God. As we engage with his heart, as we pursue him and say, Jesus, what does it mean right now, right here in the way I view this election? Show me, inform my thoughts with yours. Show me what it means with all these issues, with the social issues and the sexual issues and everything else going on. Jesus, inform my opinions. We don't get to hold these areas of our lives back and say, okay, I'll follow you at church and be a disciple there. But when it comes to what I think about the world, those are my thoughts and I get to hold on to those. We want Jesus to form those opinions. As we walk with him, we want our thoughts to conform to his. And I promise you, his thoughts lead to hope. They lead to life. 
They lead to engagement. They lead to relationship and intimacy with him and with one another. Not disengagement. Not a bunker mentality. Not hopelessness. Not depression. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a great book a number of years ago called The Cost of Discipleship. Incredible book that let, lays down how difficult it is to truly follow Christ. Because it is hard. Basically, he says the cost is everything. He says when, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us come and die. That's, that's a tough road, right? And it is a high cost. But I love Dallas Willard. who years ago wrote another statement where he said, but the cost of non-discipleship is so much higher than the cost of discipleship. You see, it may cost a lot for me to each day as I pursue my wife. For me, she's actually pretty amazing. It's not that hard. But or, or with JJ or other things or my family or, or in-laws or ministry or people that are saying attacking or gossip or the world around me. It's hard to say, Jesus, show me your heart for this situation. Conform my will to that. That is hard. That takes a dying each day to self to say, I don't want to just live this from my own opinions. I want to live out of your beauty and your love. There is a cost to that. But you know what the cost of non-discipleship is? Fear. Debilitating fear. Pain. Shame. Depression. Disengagement. Loneliness. It goes on and on and on. As we say, no, I got this, God. I'll give you those areas, but my sexual brokenness? Nope, I can't release that one right now to you. That's a little too painful. And so we hold on to our shame and our brokenness. Or my marriage or my kids. Yeah, I, my dad was a jerk and he, I, I just had a bad way. I, I just am the way I am. It's just the way I am. I don't need to change. It's just the way it's always been. Just touch these other areas of my life, Lord. And so what is the fruit of that? Pain. Hardship for those around. Anger. Depression. And as we pursue Jesus and knowing him and being his disciple in every area of our lives, the fruit begins in those areas of pain and bondage comes freedom and joy. He wants to touch our understanding of our marriages as we open up our marriages to him, as we open up our parenting to him, as we open up what it means to be a student in school or a workmate, if the, the, this person that sits next to us at work or the, the person we see every day at lunch and we say, oh, well, no, that, that workspace, that, I don't want to be the weird Jesus freak. All he's saying is, if we follow him, we're his disciples. It's going to be engaging that person. And as you're there with Jesus, just like, Lord, what does it look like for me to love this individual? Just the other night, I was with a few friends, and we're having just talk about weather and sports and everything else. And I'm just sitting there as we're talking. I just went back to God and just say, Lord, how do I bring this conversation in a way that's honoring and loving to them that glorifies you? What can I say? And I, he just gave me a few questions to ask. And we ended up having a couple hours, the most beautiful conversation of men gathering, talking about our families and where we were at with God and other things. It was just a beautiful time of encouragement. That each guy walked away going, wow, that was awesome. Nothing special I did. It was just allowing God into that moment to say, Lord, I don't want to just give this and say, no, that's social. That's my own. And so you could say, well, that, that was different. But no, it was beautiful and amazing. It was so much better allowing Jesus into that place than it would have been if I just held that as my social time. What about our pain and our brokenness? Or financial hardship or death of a loved one or pain or sickness. These areas, so we say, no, I got this. I just need to struggle. I got to fight through this. And Jesus is saying, let me in. Follow me because I am life. I am life. And me is hope. You don't have to be cynical of the world. 
You don't have to live in fear of what's going on around us because we serve the great I am, like the song that we sang. And Jesus is calling us to say, turn to me, not inward to your own pain, but hand it back to me. Follow me, serve me. Let me shape the way you think. Let me shape your heart and take that pain, take that fear, and let me bring joy and hope into the midst of it. Those words that we throw for heaven, if we've read the Gospels, we know that Jesus is so clear and he did not intend that just to be there and then. He says it's for here and now as Jesus prays. Oh God. He prays and he says, Lord, bring this from heaven to earth. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He wants us to walk in his hope. But we need him. We have to be willing to say, God, I pursue you. And so my challenge for us this morning, what areas of your life have you held away? What areas of your heart have you closed off to him and you've decided, I'm going to do this on my own? It could be your work relationships. It could be children. It could be relatives that you're not speaking to anymore where you just said, I got this. And I know there's all sorts of pain associated with you, but he knows it even more. It could be the way you view the politics and the current electric cycle and the way our, the country is or the way the world is and you're just living from a place of discouragement and, 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 and depression out of how things are. You, that is not where Jesus wants us to operate from. Hell, no. It's not going to hell. Because we serve a great God and he wants us to engage him in every area of our life. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much that you called us because you love us. And that we come to you, we don't just get a pleasure paradise in the sky, but we get Jesus. We get you, and you want all of us. As your children, as your brothers and sisters, you want all of us. So I pray as we sit here and as we enter into worship, God, may you reveal to our hearts, the area of our hearts, that we have cordoned off from you. We put the caution tape around and we just said, leave those areas alone. And God, may you help us to release our white knuckle grip that we have on our pains or our cynicisms or our depressions or our frustrations and those areas of our brokenness and be willing to release those white knuckles to you and say, Lord, come into this area of my heart. Show me what you think. Conform my desires to yours. Help us to know you, to pursue you, to be with you, to experience the beauty that you have for us.